Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Two episodes will be read from my book. It was my 16th birthday. You know, we often talk about just getting on with things despite the war. I think getting on with things helped us escape from the realities on the ground. My birthday was one such occasion. So here goes. The birthday, part one. July 1978. You do realise there's a war raging around us, my father said. He raised an eyebrow waiting for my response. I wasn't to be dissuaded. Of course I know that, John. But it's my 16th birthday and it's important. My dad shook his head. I waited for him to answer. Look, you can have the party against my better judgement, I might add. But we can't have kids driving on those roads in the dark. I don't want to be responsible for someone getting their bloody legs blown off. He paused for effect, took a drag of his smoke and then continued. And the townies, well, the townies will have to stay the weekend, I suppose. Yes, I thought. Perfect. The victory block was known as a hot area or the sharp end. Living in the sharp end, any sharp end, was both terrifying and also something to boast about at school. Many of the kids at boarding school lived in the sharp end, whether it was Sipililo or Centenary, Mount Darwin or the Eastern Highlands. When our area, the victory block or V-block as it became known, turned into the sharp end, well, I was secretly delighted. I have to say, Pete, this is one of your more harebrained schemes. I mean, look what's just happened to the Moorcrafts, my father reminded me. Well, I could hardly forget. The Moorcrafts had been on my mind all day. On the evening of 21st of July, our old family friends, Mona and Sid Moorcroft, were coming home from the club late, despite the curfew. Driving over the ridge that separated their farm, Berry's Post, from the native reserve, they noticed a glow on the horizon, reflecting off the low overcast sky. Stopping the car, they stared in horror, Mona reaching back instinctively to see if the two kids, Ian and Michael, were still sleeping. Ahead of them lay a path of destruction. Their life's work appeared to have simply gone up in smoke. Across the beautiful, verdant Berry's Post Valley, their house was ablaze, the fields of cotton smouldering, the compounds and barns glowing red from the embers. Realising the imminent danger they were in, Sid quickly reversed the car and sped back the 20 miles to our farm to alert the district. My diary entry, 21st of July, 1978. 
The fucking terrors have burnt the house to the ground. There wasn't even a pot or pan left. The dogs and cattle killed. Even the aeroplane gone. They've got nothing left. Even lowly worm was killed. Jesus, I cannot believe it. It's unreal. Mum has been on radio duty all night. This war is getting beyond a joke. I wish all of us friends could just leave and start a new life. I'm still young, but I, I know that I'm born for Rhodesia and cannot leave it. It's just so close to home, and these past two days have been the most hectic months of my life. First it was David Ward getting killed, and now it's them. What are they going to do? I don't blame them if the Moorcrofts want to leave. They have the same amount here than in any other country. That is nothing. Dinada, nothing. Every night I pray for my relations and friends, but look what happens. Is there a God? I seriously doubt it. Now I'm just waiting for it to happen to our family. If it does, please God, let it be me. I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm afraid of losing my own friends and my relations and my farm, the place where I grew up. Can't those fucking tears be stopped? I'm losing faith in this government and this country. Jesus, what a birthday. And now I wanted a party. A date was set for the 27th of August, 1978. My diary. Phone calls all day. I hope to God we get enough birds to come to this dance. At the moment I've got 13 girls and 20 boys. Mum's away on radio duty again. There were two ambushes on the Missouri Road, which, well, it makes it harder for people to come. The dynamics of organising such a do were very clearly not easy, but neither was it impossible, and after countless phone calls, I finally managed to get most of the teenage girls from Mbukwis to come along. After all, most farmers were used to this kind of thing. The big question was whether the townies could make it. And, well, you know, I've got to be honest, the townies had the seriously cool chicks. Would their parents agree to let their kids bugger off to the most volatile district in the country along roads that clearly weren't safe? We made a plan, and after much persuasion, my mother managed to calm the city folk. Those from Salisbury were to be ferried over the day before in my parents' car and a Hertz rental. My mother allowed my friend Foxy to drive. One was expected by law to be over 21 to drive a rental car. But Foxy, being the only one of our gang who had a driving license, left my mum with little choice. In the greater scheme of things, it did seem a risk worth taking, despite Foxy's age. He was only 16. And so we set off in a convoy for what thankfully turned out to be an uneventful journey. The day prior to the party, my father was not the best of company. He wasn't used to his farm being overrun by a bunch of teenagers. I could see that his hackles were up. He had little patience. He wanted us out of his hair. For Christ's sake, Pete, take them camping or something. Just get the buggers out of the damn house. 
Well, I can't take the girls, John. It's way too rough and ready. Okay, leave the women here. They can stay in the cottage. Just tell them I don't want a bloody racket from the music. It seemed like a good enough compromise. I decided to go camping down by the Neuroe River. It was risky, but simply the best spot on the farm to camp out. I knew, as did my father, that Masitwi Farm was a popular haven for gorillas, many of whom used the farm for R&R. The Neuroe was, well, a natural route taken by insurgents moving from the native reserve to the mining district of Muturishanga, where they could blend in with the crowds, get laid or just get shit-faced on Chibuku beer. And now I was to take these urbanite kids into the bush to camp out, armed only with a tutu. A pathetic weapon at the best of times and quite useless at night. Getting out of my father's hair was one thing, yet unknown to any of us, other than my dad, of course, the police had approached my father the night before and told him that they had intel from captured terrorists that our house was due to be attacked over the weekend, the very weekend of my party. My father had blanched. Whilst it was too late to cancel the party, he felt it was quite prudent to quietly speak to some of the local farmers and a few key members of the community to join him at our house on Saturday night to keep guard, as it were. It's doubtful that any of them really knew how tough it would be to control 70 drunken teenagers. After a breakfast of fresh pawpaw from the garden, followed by eggs, bacon, fried eggplant and burravos, we set off in the Land Rover towards the Neroe River on the northwestern boundary of the farm. Conda, our houseboy, had already packed the camping equipment much to my father's annoyance. Bloody spoiled kids, as if Conda doesn't have enough to do already, he muttered as he threw down his napkin and strode off to the veranda to pick up his hat and head down to the tobacco grading sheds. John had a point, and insanely irritating as it was, often he was correct. Of course, we had... No inkling as to why he was really so agitated. No sooner had we heard the rev of his pickup truck halfway down the hill than my mother went over and turned on the wireless. Chris Christopherson's gravelly voice crooning about me and Bobby McGee. Just before it rained Took us all away to New Orleans My father, being quite unmusical, would always insist on silence in the house. Listen to the sound of Africa, he would say. You might learn more from that than the bloody racket you play. Right, are you kids packed for the camp? asked my mum. I need you out of the house, I've got lots to do. Of course, apart from the sleeping bag, ground sheet and tent, bacon, eggs, cast iron frying pan, enamel teapot, 
a small bag of mealy meal and my mum's delicious marinated kebabs known locally as societies speared onto thin bamboo skewers and several packs of my father's favourite country club cheroots, not forgetting the useless tutu. Our group was, except for me, entirely made up of towny mates. Piling into the vehicle, we set off driving past some magnificent euphorbia trees, their cactus-like branches stretching up to the skies. A gang of noisy women from the compound stood arguing like a flock of parakeets in a feeding frenzy. Colourful ducks wound tightly around their heads, snotty babies strapped to their backs. They were dividing the spoils of their hunt. Fat field mice, freshly dug from the burrows. They stopped their chatting and stared sullenly as we drove past. These pampered Murungu must have seemed otherworldly to them, laden as we were with our mass of spoils for just one night. Shortly, the dense bush of Mafuti and mountain acacia, Mohobohobo and Mazanji trees began encroaching on all sides of the narrow road. This was the bush I loved so much. Huge granite copies rose above the tree line along the way. A flock of guinea fowl suddenly burst from the safety of the long spear grass lining the side of the road, their loud staccato clucking clearly audible above the roar of the engine as they flapped their wings comically, trying to escape the careering vehicle. Golden streaks of light from the late morning haze created a delicate pall of dust hanging gently over a fallow field of pale yellow grass. The morning dew still sparkled on the blades of spear grass and cobwebs. To our left I spotted some grey vervet monkeys, their black inquisitive faces masked by white fur, their fluorescent blue balls and scarlet penises proudly displayed between their legs as they scampered across the cattle dip with its crude thatched roof sagging with age. As we slowed to drive over an anthill, we could hear the haunting chant of the herd boys as they rounded up the mombies into the chase, singing dip, 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 dip. Occasionally a panicked beast would need a helping hand from one of the herd boys. Balancing along the narrow walkway and gripping the cow by one horn, they would then drag it through to the shallow end of the dip. The younger calves and heifers were generally more trouble and often needed a painful nip from a herd boy to urge them to take the leap. Running up behind the animal, the boy would grip its tail, twisting it up against the back of the beast and then quickly sink his teeth into the tough ox hide. Often this meant having to contend with a very shitty rear end. These cattle boys lived amongst the mombies and knew each one personally. Across the pastel expanse of grassland, broken only by the occasional anthill or clump of pigweed, 
I saw the evergreen tree line along the Neroe River. Beside the river, a towering granite hill rose up from the valley. At intervals along its south face, you could just make out the rows of stone walls built by Bushmen hundreds of years earlier. I turned the Land Rover off the road and bumped over the ruts and contours, now overgrown with thorny saplings and blackjack bushes. A tiny diker sprang startled from the undergrowth and darted off across the field. In unison, the dogs jumped from the back of the vehicle and gave chase, barking madly. The diker would be much too quick for these tame domestic animals, but at least it gave them some exercise. For minutes after we had lost sight of the dogs, we could still hear the high-pitched yelping of my favourite companion, Bella, echoing along the river valley. Of all the dogs, Bella was the smallest, but made up for it with a fierce hunting spirit. Her antics always made me laugh as she ran through the bush, her little head bobbing up and down in the tall grass, trying to see where she was going. In stark contrast to the rest of the farm, the vegetation along the Neroe was almost like a rainforest, huge gnarled roots exposed to the air after years of seasonal flooding, giant banks of dead reeds wedged up against cliff faces, and broken tree trunks, debris from the last rainy season. It was paradise down here, just a few miles from the house as the crow flies. It was the dry season, but this river flowed all year round, fed by streams up in the great dike. Here on Masitwi the river was magnificent, plunging over rocks and waterfalls, sweeping away bulrushes and dead branches in its wake. Ancient, delicate, yellow, Acelia africana leopard orchids clung to the trunks of mountain acacia. Bursts of scarlet from the flower of a kaffir boom tree, its lucky beans scattered around the base in a carpet of tiny, shiny black and red dots. Lugging our camping equipment, we walked for about half an hour along the river bank, admiring as we went these beautiful, exotic, blossoming flowers above our heads. Across a silent pond, illuminated with mauve and yellow water lilies, a monitor lizard quietly slipped into the river, disturbing a bright orange dragonfly in its passing. The air down here had a mysterious aura to it. Perhaps it was the smell of the rotting undergrowth and the hanging lianas or the ethereal light filtering down from above, highlighting the millions of fine strands of cobwebs stretching from tree to tree like a gossamer canopy. Presently we came across my favourite camping spot. A wonderful sight nestled amongst superb shade trees on a flat piece of ground above a waterfall that crashed and bubbled between a narrow granite face to form a superb natural rock slide, known locally as a foofy slide. There was something creepy about that pool. Perhaps it was just too deep and too green for my liking. 
I always imagined the cold, evil eyes of a crocodile silently slipping beneath the surface to lie in wait for its victim. The dogs returned from their adventure, tongues lolling from their frothy mouths. Bella, a miniature German schnauzer, was covered in sticky blackjack seeds and burrs. Come here, you silly bugger, I commanded. And is someone going to go hunting for our scoff? Everyone had a duty at these camps. Well, not really a duty, but we tried. The group split up with one gang setting off with the rifle to bag a few bush dubs for dinner. They were going to walk along the river as far as Ndegi, which in Swahili means aeroplane or bird. Ndegi is a large arable field where a trainee pilot from the RAF came down during the Second World War. The remains of the aircraft could still be seen strewn across the bush. Southern Rhodesia was one of the safest training areas for the RAF during World War II. For some, anyway. Not this poor bugger. With a sharp whistle, the dogs took off after the hunters. They would be gone for the best part of the afternoon, so the rest of us set about collecting firewood, assembling the tent amid much cursing and laughter. We each cracked open a bottle of castle lager. A couple of shots echoed down the canyon. The hunters must have been in luck. There would be fowl for dinner tonight. Not that we needed anything else to eat. We all settled down to a long and languid afternoon of teenage banter and laughter. By the time the lads returned, two miserable grey bush dubs and a guinea fowl hung limply from Spike's waist. Dried blood smeared across his khaki shorts. We had the fire crackling nicely, the tent erected, and food stashed in the crook of a tree to keep it safe from the dogs, badgers, jackals, and ants. What twats! Is that all you could get for the pot? Thank Christ for bully beef, someone snapped. We had decided to sleep outside under the stunning Milky Way, the tent there just in case of rain, which was highly unlikely at this time of year. Man, we can't eat these, I said, looking at the doves. There's fuck all meat on them. We tossed them over to the dogs who attacked them as if they had never had a decent meal in their lives. Lighting yet another Madison, I laughed. Fucking dogs, you'd think we never fed the goddamn things. Okay, who's for another beer? The mood was peaceful as the sun dipped and hit the peak of a nearby coffee, illuminating it in an ethereal golden glow. The war was suddenly very far away. The horrors of what had happened to the Moorcroft farm a few days earlier seemed like a distant memory. Someone passed around another country club cheroot. The cheroots were reserved only for special occasions. We sat back and looked at the waterfall cascading down the rocks into the deep pool. You know the Neroe River has a more sinister side, don't you, I said to the group. I mean, it being the main artery where the terrorists often head for R&R. 
I had their attention. Shit, man, it's pretty damn chilling to think that somebody might be watching our every move, one of them said. The others looked around at the dense surrounding bush. I laughed, trying to sound casual. Oh, come on. It's unlikely that even terrorists would compromise their position by murdering us. After all, they're here to hide out, not to expose themselves. They remained unconvinced. The guerrillas would often hit farmsteads and then disappear silently into the bush, crossing the Nyoroi River onto our 13,000-acre Misitwi farm and then fading away like ghosts or shadows. Weren't your neighbours attacked recently, Spike chipped in. Oh, yeah, I answered. You mean the Moorcrops? No, not the Moorcrops, Spike said. I heard your very close neighbours were attacked. Yes, but that was just a few weeks ago. The Turs would have scattered by now. Seriously, don't worry about it. My mind drifted back to the last half-term exit break from school. My dad and I were sitting on the veranda beneath a lush jade vine. It had just gone dark, the air was cool, and we were watching the antics of a pair of long-tailed widow birds grubbing on the lawn before they headed off to roost. My dad was enjoying his whiskey and soda in Aya Castle Lager when the Agricolert burst into action. Control, control, this is Victor Charlie 1-1. Repeat, Victor Charlie 1-1. We're under fire, over. That was the call sign for the Muir of Ord farm. Ron and Val Grossmith were being attacked. Ron and Val were a stoic, semi-retired couple living 10 miles or so from our farm. But as the crow flies, it was only a few miles across the valley, right in front of us. Suddenly the world and the direction of the Grossmiths was lit up with a spectacular firework display as tracer bullets and RPG rockets whistled and soared through the night sky. I clearly remember being more fascinated than terrified, thinking how amazing the colours were and how strange that we couldn't hear the explosions. We continued drinking while listening to my mother on the radio, speaking with Val, checking if she was okay, offering encouragement, but ultimately helpless. This was their battle, and despite their age, Ron and Val would simply have to weather the storm. While Val calmly filled magazines with 7.62mm rounds, Ron kept up a heroic barrage of bullets, finally scaring off the attackers. Only cosmetic damage was inflicted, a rocket straight through the sitting room and several smashed windows. But the psychological damage would remain for much longer. Back at the camp, I shivered and looked at my mates lounging around the campsite. Come on, you guys, last one in is a nincompoop. Laughing and shouting, we stripped naked and dived into the cool green water of the Neroe. The blood-red sun set over the granite copies across the river, occasionally highlighting the airy ancient rock walls surrounding the steep cliff. 
now guarded over by tiny furry hyraxes, silent sentinels perched on these battlements in the sky. As dark descended and the rock surface changed from gold to indigo and then to black, the bush around us began to take on an eerie murkiness. In Africa, there's no twilight. Suddenly it's dark. Dark as only Africa can be, with a sky as vast as eternity. And the Milky Way, with its southern cross, painted like a massive peppered smudge across a giant black canvas. We huddled down around the fire, feeding it sticks and wood, the sparks exploding into the night sky. And like all teenage boys, we began talking about what comes naturally. Girls and sex. Girls and sex, sex and girls. And more sex. Don't forget, only two months earlier, I had had my cherry popped by a sailor in the Seychelles. The alcohol began to kick in. The heady, damp vegetation and the warm glow of the fire added to the atmosphere. We were still naked from the swim and our pink skins glowed in the firelight. Inevitably, we began comparing boners. Who was the biggest? Who was a roundhead? Who was a cavalier? Measuring and summing up. Of course, at school we all cavorted around Starkers, but this was something else. I was not unaware of the silliness and seriousness of my predicament. I stared around the fire at the group of boys, peachy skins glowing in the firelight. Well, this is all terribly grown up, Elliot said. His sarcastic tone was lost on me. Fremantle giggled. There was an embarrassed silence. At that moment, Bella broke the spell by bolting into camp. Our night was about to change. The dog was shaking with fright. Something was up. She cringed next to me, her body trembling, spooked. Anxiously, we looked around, peering into the inky darkness, at the same time scrambling for our shorts and T-shirts. Quickly put out the damn fire, Foxy commanded. All conversation ceased. The sudden silence seemed to ring in my ears. All I could hear were the crickets. I heard one boy struggling with the bolt of the tutu, trying to load around in the darkness. We were drunk and flustered, then much too young. The round jammed in the chamber, rendering the weapon useless. Bewilderment spread across our faces. Look, I whispered, it might be nothing. But as the words tumbled from my mouth, a flaming torch caught all of our attention across on the opposite bank of the river. Moving silently in between the riverine trees, disappearing behind a rock or a bush, the sinister apparition would then reappear, always drawing nearer. It seemed like an eternity as we held our breath, waiting for it to show itself again. There! Spike whispered. It's getting closer. 
fucking weapon, someone else said. Why does it have to jam now? Fuck, 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 groaned a voice in the darkness. It was Elliot. But his voice had echoed across the canyon. Almost immediately, the torchlight went out. Now the shit was about to hit the fan. We had been compromised. They've heard us. Bugger it. No shit. Let's get the fuck out of here. There was nothing to do but to move away from the camp and move away pronto. Like shit of a shovel, to coin a phrase from my dad. But where? Trying not to panic, we all crept off into the thick bush in silence. Our eyes wide like the bush babies that lived in the trees near the back of the house. Every time someone trod on a dead twig, the crack made our hearts lurch and our sphincters tighten. Shit, oh shit, God damn it! there are thorns, Fremantle squeaked. Stuff the thorns, hurry up, Spike hissed. We quickly decided the best plan would be to make our way through the dense bush and eventually hit the road a mile or so further on. Then it would simply be a mad dash to the house and to safety. The Land Rover was out of the question. It was right in the path of the enemy, and of course they might have laid down landmines. Dirt roads were constantly mined and had become an absolute curse. An owl hooted somewhere in the distance, and some nocturnal animal dashed across our path in the gloom. It was a porcupine rattling its quills to keep us at bay. We huddled together, the two people on the outside, constantly moving and muscling into the centre, like some mad modern ballet or a blind Irish dance troupe, as if being in the middle would afford extra protection, as if being in the middle made you safe. No one wants to be on the outside, exposed. We continued in silence, bumping into one another, skin against skin, trying our best to become invisible. After ten long minutes, we reached the road. As we emerged from the relative safety of the trees, we glanced up to the sky, and to our horror, the moon was full and the sandy road made our bodies stand out like beacons in the darkness. Bloody hell, Spike said. We looked like flipping sitting ducks. Against the white sand on the road and the full moon above, we were indeed sitting ducks. Let's take off our clothes, Foxy suggested. We looked across at him. Are you stark raving mad? What the fuck are you talking about? This is hardly... No, man, he whispered. Look at us. Our skins are white. The road is white. The goddamn fucking moon is white, twat face. We needed no further persuasion. Too terrified to venture back into the bush, we decided on the only coherent action... We stripped off. Bundling our shirts and shorts under our arms, we were relieved to see that our fish-belly white skins blended into the light-coloured sand of the road. Fox, you're a daft bugger, but a clever daft bugger. Somehow I don't think they do this in the army, a voice commented in the gloom, a stifled giggle. Shh! 
Without another word being spoken, we took one last hysterical look at each other and moved off down the road. Bump, bump, shuffle, shuffle. You could smell the fear, but not the irony. Naked together once again. The situation must have been a rare sight to encounter. But the night was not yet finished with us. To our utter horror in the distance, sudden flashes of light exploded across the sky in the exact direction of the house. Jesus, what the fuck is that? The house is being attacked. How do you know, Fremantle barked. It could be fucking lightning. Look at the stars, you tosspot. There's no goddamn rain for miles. Jesus H. Christ, stop bitching, you two. We can't go back. We can't go forwards. What the fucking hell should we do? Again, the flashes lit up the night sky. There was something amiss, something surreal about these unearthly flashes of light. Surely if they were being attacked... We would hear the shots, I suggested. After all, we're only a mile or so from home. The sound would carry, even if the wind was against us. I tried to concentrate. When the Grossmiths had been attacked, we heard nothing. AKs tend not to make much noise, more like pop, pop, pop. The FN, on the other hand, made a fucking racket. We would hear the FN, wouldn't we? Think clearly, Wood. Think, think, make a decision for these terrified teens. Okay, we go forwards, I said. Keep to the plan. Watch out for landmines. Keep your eyes peeled, guys. We pressed on. No one was interested in arguing. Walking into a firefight seemed infinitely better than going back to the dark, creepy campsite. With an occasional furtive glance backwards, we managed to keep our eyes peeled on the road ahead for any telltale signs of upturned earth that might hide the danger of a landmine. After half an hour, we reached the bottom of the security fence surrounding the garden. I realised something was wrong. Shit! The security lights are off and the house is in total darkness. We crouched behind the garage wall and waited. Five minutes. Ten minutes. The silence was deafening. Even the chorus of frogs copulating by the pool seemed to have shut up. Eventually I started to call out for my father. John! John! No response. Again I called. John! Finally I heard my father's voice. He must have been keeping out of sight behind the veranda wall. What the hell was going on? Is that you, Pete? Are you guys alone, he called. My God, he thinks we're being held hostage, I whispered. It was a ploy used occasionally by terrorists to lure farmers to their imminent death. Yeah, we're alone, I called. Still, he didn't reveal himself. I tried to laugh, make light of the situation, trying to get him to believe me. Foxy decided to change the game and spoke to my dad in Afrikaans, hoping this would do the trick. Near John, onces alien, exwir. No doubt this added to his confusion, 
Woody didn't speak a word of Afrikaans. I glared at him in the darkness. Foxy shrugged. It was worth a try. After what seemed an interminable period of time, my father walked out to the gate. The FN semi-automatic held out at an angle in front of him, ready to fire. I cannot remember a time when I've been so relieved to see him. What the bloody hell's the matter with you kids, he said, unlocking the gate. Why have you returned from the camp? Stammering, I explained our predicament. He glanced at the other kids, looking at their naked bodies without so much as a raised eyebrow, and laughed. Bloody kids, there was a big bushfire down there last week, you twits. It was probably just a burning tree stump catching in the wind. Honestly, Pete, I had no idea you were such a townie these days. Needless to say, with a backward glance, he quickly hustled us into the house and locked the security fence. Between that crazy moment of sheer exhaustion, elation and downright childish giggling, we scrambled to put on our clothes. I asked him about the security lights. Listen, you lads, he ventured. The flashing lights you saw was due to a power failure. The Electricity Supply Commission in Matorishanga was simply testing the power. Every time the power came back on, the lights would flash out across the dark bush. Nothing to be alarmed about. Now go to bed. It's late. He shook his head and walked back to his room. His explanation all made perfect sense, and having sent the other four kids to bed, my father took me aside and sat me down. Look, Pete, he explained, I'm not sure what that was you saw. I'll take a walk down there tomorrow to have a look. But after you left for the camp, I had a call from Special Branch. They were confirming information that our house is due to be bloody attacked tomorrow night. I thought it best not to panic you chaps. In fact, you probably would have been safer at the river anyway. That's why I sent you down there. I didn't tell my friends about this for weeks. And my father, thank goodness, didn't ask why we were all naked. If you found that episode amusing, feel free to tune in to part two of the birthday weekend, coming up soon. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.